not watching the YouTube videos, you should go watch it because I'm wearing a new shirt. We were just we were just going through some of our clips and like I have shirt. There's a whole closet behind me full of clothes, but for whatever oh, reason yeah. I sure wear there is. <laughs> there there is, you couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah. Apparently I wear the same shirt every time we record. And it's not like a Zuckerberg thing or anything like that. It's it's literally it just I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if it's just like subconsciously throughout the week that's my friday shirt or whatever but yes i'm wearing a new one right now because all, all of our thumbnails, yeah, our thumbnails <laughs> look like we recorded all of our podcasts on the same day <laughs> yeah sorry Jeez. to call you out man that just really made me laugh as soon as you saw it you're like holy shit i've been wearing the same shirt for like three episodes i have to go change my shirt <laughs> yeah 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 so anyways anybody who's listening go go catch the youtube this is a nice <clears throat> shirt that i'm wearing actually <laughs> should we call the company do this this fucking true classic company because they i think they've probably spent like five hundred dollars targeting me with ads over the last two years mm-hmm. and i finally caved and i got, and it. got true you. classics yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're good it works advertising works people yeah what are we nice talking man. about what well, are we thanks, talking about today man? thanks for the laugh bro um yeah we got a really fun show today i have been cooking something up that i think is very very interesting and it could be could be because as everybody who listens to us regularly knows that this is all a little bit of an experiment for Ethan and I. But this could be a really fun format, which I think will teach people, will educate people, and also will um, show like new creative ways that aren't in the current zeitgeist, let's call it, of how people are building businesses online and just like the new the the new creative stuff that people are coming up with to to make a living in ways that we wouldn't traditionally think of. So we're going to jump right into it. However, real quick, I have a very short announcement. It turns out that when we do these share screen type episodes, that it screws with the aspect ratio of the YouTube. So you can totally watch the episode. And this episode is going to be one that we also recommend that you go to YouTube and watch. I just found out the other day that the the aspect on the video is a little bit different than we're typically used to. So we're looking into that. Um, we've just been using Zoom. We, we might switch to something and we also might not. Just uh, letting you know that that we're aware of it. All right, man. You ready to dive in? Yeah, I'm excited. For this. I, I, so I have no idea what this is going to be about, but been looking forward to it. And we were supposed to record a couple of days ago and ended up having yeah. to bump it. So now I'm like double ready. So yeah. hit me with it. All right. As part of my newsletter that I send out every week, I'm trolling on Twitter a lot just to find interesting people that I didn't know were out there. And this week, I found this guy. I should have asked him how to pronounce his name. This is going to be a huge problem if we if we do these episodes like this. I think it's Ali Ladha. Ali, I'm pretty sure I got the first name right. Ladha is his second name. His Twitter handle is at Ali the CFO, A-L-I-T-H-E-C-F-O. He wrote a great Twitter thread about EBITDA. Uh, I wanted to put it in my newsletter because I personally feel that... Well, actually, I, I can tell you this because this, this relates to you. There was um, the My First Million episode I've listened to Really, the only one I, I really ever listened to all the way through was the one with Rob Deerdick. He was uh, pretty influential to me because I was a skater kid and he really paved this path to make skating not 
like a, a criminal type of vibe. You know, like my whole youth, I was always getting kicked out of places. And I was like, oh, get out of here, skaters. You know, and Rob Deere came around and like he built a brand around it and like fashion. And, and a lot of what he did with skating, I actually used as inspiration to do for sobriety because it was kind of the same thing. So I saw Rob Dyrdek was on an episode and I was very excited about that because he was always somebody I looked up to. And in the episode, Rob spoke about a book that can't remember what the book is called. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. It's something like Start at the End, where when he was building companies, he decided to figure out what he would have to do to sell it and then work backwards. When I heard that, I was like, yeah, I really wish I knew that when I first started out because I've had a couple opportunities in the last like three or four years where if I would have known how to structure my business from the very beginning, I could have exited them at just like better valuations because I, I could have planned ahead of time. It's not to say that I, I think I did anything wrong. I just, I remember that and hearing that this is something that I wish more young entrepreneurs knew, just the idea of like starting with the end in mind. So all of that to say that this guy, Ali, he wrote a really great Twitter thread about EBITDA. And I'm not going to go through the Twitter thread. This episode isn't actually about the, the thread. We're going to put it in there. But I put him in my newsletter because I just think it's important for like young entrepreneurs to know that if you want to sell your company one day, you have to get a good understanding of like what some of these metrics are. Anyway, I started looking at this guy. I'm like, damn, this guy is so freaking cool. And this is the thing that I'm really excited to show you, Ethan. So look at the business that he created. I've heard of this, but I've never seen it done in such like a solopreneur type way. For people who watch in, you can obviously see the screen for everybody listening. His website is verticalcpa.ca. And he, he calls himself a virtual CFO. This is so badass. And I, I looked around at his website and there's two things that he did that I had some questions about. So I reached out to him on Twitter and he and I have been, been going back and forth for a little bit. And by the way, at any point, if like something jumps out at you and, um, and you want to ask some questions, like please do, because I, I have like more questions, especially after knowing a little bit more about his journey. For sure. Real quick, just for anybody who's listening and may not be familiar with the concept of virtual CFO. Oh, yeah, uh, are you going to get into that or should we just define no, it? No, go quick? for it. Yeah, good point. Cool. So it, it seems like you can add some clarity here if I have it a little bit wrong, but uh, it seems like what he's doing is he's basically freelancing or contracting as, as Tim mentioned, a virtual CFO or what some people would call like a fractional CFO, which yeah. would typically be so inside of a large company, uh, it's very well established, has you know huge budget, big staff, they'll have a dedicated CFO. That's a like C-level executive focused on their finances. But what happens, and obviously small companies that are just starting don't have anybody focused on that. It's mostly the founder. And then there's this in-between zone where you're big enough that it's really important to get your books straight, uh, but you're not big enough to hire uh, uh, either somebody full-time or maybe even to be able to afford somebody uh, who has the talent to keep track of your finances that the way that you need to keep track of. And so there's this emerging field of fractional CFOs, fractional CMOs. And they're basically people with the C-level experience to be able to run your company the way you need run, but they work either on retainer or on an hourly basis so that you only engage them part of the time. So that that seems like what he's doing here. It's like a fractional CFO. Uh, that's exactly what he's doing. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because 
it's more relevant now than it's ever been because there's so many businesses that kind of float right in between that, you know, 600,000 a year, 1.2 million, maybe even 2 million. If, if you hire a CFO, things usually come with the title. One of them typically is like percentage points. CFOs are very in demand and especially good ones because once again, like this is stuff that I wish I knew then when you get your numbers right, you find money everywhere. You're just like, oh my God, like just by having somebody do the math, you're making more money just literally by the nature of it, figuring out where you're leaking and, and stuff like that. But exactly what you said is very, very prevalent where it's like, ah, oh, like I'm making, if you're doing 600,000, 700,000 a year, you know, you're, you're probably pocketing as the owner of the company, like 70, $80,000 a year, you know, like you're making a good living. All of a sudden you bring the CFO that goes down to like 40, 50,000. It, it really, really hits. And so this job title is so perfect for, I shouldn't say job title. This, this business model is so perfect for, for what we got going on now. All right. So I reached out to this guy. Oh, I, and, and this was one of the questions that I had when I saw him. Look at his pricing structure. And the, the answer to this is really where I think he is brilliant in how he's marketing it. And I, I found out a lot about this guy. Okay. So he has three tiers for his services. Let's say I own a business. I find him. I, I need a fractional CFO. I need a virtual CFO. He's got a gold, which is vertical. It's a bi-weekly review, minimum of 24 one-on-one -on -one discussions per year, bookkeeping, the, the, the standard services. And in addition, there's payroll, there's KPI tracking, which is your key point indicators. It's like the numbers you need to hit, your budgeting and forecasting, and your cash flow optimization. Very, very, very valuable skills. Even if you just know how to write the formulas for this stuff on Excel, like it's, it's hard. It's hard to figure out how to do. So that's the gold. And then there's a the silver. Silver is basically everything that the gold has, except it doesn't have payroll, it doesn't have KPI tracking, it doesn't have budgeting, it doesn't have forecasting. Or excuse me, and it doesn't have cash flow optimization. Yeah. And it looks <clears> like <throat> the uh, it looks like his, he'll review your numbers monthly instead of biweekly. Uh yes, yeah. W way to find good point. And then there's the bronze. And the bronze is the only one of these tiers that has an actual price on it. It says 600 plus a month. And the bronze tier is a quarterly review, a minimum of four one-on-one -on -one discussions per year. And it's, it's, it's basically bookkeeping and tax filing, really. Like, uh, there's another one that says systems, apps, integration. Basically, that just means QuickBooks and then like less dedicated support, right? So it's, it's, it's bookkeeping and you can reach out to them once a quarter and be like, Hey, what do we have going on? So I saw this. I thought, well, What's up with gold and silver as somebody who would be really in this position? I know if I'm calling this guy, I got a ton of questions and it's going to take him a really, really, really long time. And I mean a ton of questions. Like I'm, I'm on the phone with this guy for an hour and a half at least. And, and I'm definitely not closing on the first call. And so everything about what he's doing so far. The way he's writing his Twitter threads about like finance and stuff that's like kind of dry and boring. I was like, wow, he made this so engaging. Like what a cool marketing platform. The way he's selling his services, it's, it's all really captivating. But then we get here and I think, 
how on earth is 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 he doing this? So can I, I reach can out I pause to him you? on Twitter? Sorry, can I pause you for one second to dig just a little bit deeper into, Please, into what I'm, you're I'm getting hoping at? that you will because I'm I'm trying to think to myself, like, what kind of questions are people having? So, uh, totally. So yes, please. Yeah. Okay. So, and I, I think I'll take a step back just to maybe explain where it seems like you're headed with this. Cause we got into this topic looking at this guy who's got a like virtual CFA, CFA. Now I've forgotten the, like, I forgot the uh, acronym for what, for what it CFO. is that he, yeah, CFO, CFO. Okay. So yeah. CFO, he's got a virtual CFO company. And people are probably thinking like, okay, well, why are we talking about this? And I think there's a couple things going on. One, it's interesting to know that this is an option if you run a company that falls like in this certain price uh, or like a revenue strata. That's that's interesting. But it seems like what you're really getting at is the strategy behind how he's selling a services company. And so he, you know, you you stumbled on him with this like super viral Twitter thread where he's explaining high level ideas that basically are important to his target niche because. He's talking about EBITDA, which is, or EBITDA, however you pronounce it, this thing that big companies worry about, small companies should know about, but don't necessarily know about. Yep. That traffic's being funneled to his website. Now he's laid out his pricing on the website inside this three, three-tiered three system, which the three tiers themselves, fairly common. But what you're saying is really cool is he does this thing where he, he basically sets a baseline by only including the price of one of the tiers, mm. and the other two are call for more information. Right. And this and and what you're getting at, I think, is this strategy could work for pretty much any services company. It's it, it is rare to stumble on a service company. Like when you stumble on a services company, you typically see one of two things. Either all their prices are listed out or none of them are. And I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it sucks. Like people joke about this all the time. They're like, if your website has a call for details, button, like you don't have your pricing. I'm going to your comp- your competition because I just don't have time to wonder about your pricing very much. And what he's doing is he's threading that needle by saying, well, here's basically what it's going to cost for the least expensive package. So if this is above your, like your pay grade, I'm not your guy. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's what you can expect for the least expensive option. And it's going to go up from there because you can see not only are the services much higher end, but to your point, I'm going to have to talk you through the sales process for this. We're going to have to make sure you're the right fit. Da 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 da. And so this is a really interesting strategy he's using. Typical price or price tiering strategy, but he's really giving people that sort of he's anchoring them. That's the word I'm looking for with yeah, this $600 well price said. point. Yeah. Okay. All well right. Said. So take me to the next step. So now you're thinking to yourself as a business owner, okay, well, this is something I'm interested in. I would clearly need the higher level service just based on the size of my company. And so you're getting ready to what? Click on one of these call for pricing buttons or what's well, going through your head at this point? Maybe. And this is this is why I was so fascinated. So I asked him a couple of questions and he was very generous with his time. I, I guess I'll just go through some of the questions and I'll go through his answers and then we'll look at the examples of his answers because he, one, he's highly freaking intelligent. You could tell just by the way he writes, but also from his um his background. And two, I thought it was so creative how, like you said, he threaded this needle. So my first question, finance is often seen as a dry and boring subject, yet you've been able to build a massive following around, quote, dry ideas, such as accounting, billing, and accounting. That's a typo. What do you think has been the biggest factor in your following? I wanted to ask this question because one of the problems I see with social media 
is that people use social media to talk about social media. And it's not always a good avenue for more quote unquote service businesses to be applied. Finance being one of them. Like this is why I don't do any social media for Stadzi because like who the hell is going to follow a Twitter account about behavioral health and about invoicing with insurance companies and like what the newest insurance legislation is going to be. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking maybe I got this all wrong. You know, maybe there is a thirst for this kind of knowledge within a particular subset of people. I just need to figure out how to present it in a way that's compelling. And again, if you go to this guy's thread, it's very, very compelling. I mean, he's a great storyteller. He knows how to apply it in a way that would that that would like sit well with like the common business owner, the common small business owner. So he answers. I try to do two things when I tweet. One, make finance and accounting simple to understand, which is critical. And two, make finance and accounting interesting. Most finance professionals who explain finance concepts to the average Joe use jargon, can't simplify concepts or simply tell others that these concepts are too hard to understand. And that last sentence really, really got me. Like, uh, because you're not going to need to know this is always what they need to say. Right, mm-hmm. you're not going to need to know this. I'll do this for you. Well, it's like, well, I want to know it, you know. And so he's building a huge brand on Twitter with this like really boring content. Mm-hmm. So finally, he says, "I completely reject these ideals. Accounting and finance concepts are actually quite interesting and easy to understand if you break them down into small chunks. It's also a life and business skill that everyone needs." Mm. How's that sit with you? I like a lot about this. I think there's a few things that I want to dig into. First, I like how well-defined the framework is inside of what he's doing. Can you go back to his Twitter thread for just a second? Sure. And then I would like, I want to see his profile just to see you know, how big oh, is yeah, this no guy's problem. following. Okay. So 72,000 followers just as context for people, which is like you said, an enormous following, especially for somebody who would be in a business that's not considered super sexy most of the time. So what I really like about what he's done, what he said is he kind of rejects the the, the de facto um, ideas inside of his industry. And you see this in a lot of different places, or you, what, what, not a lot of different places, but when you see people do this, yes, they set themselves up for success. So what are some other examples? Trucking is one that I was looking at recently. Mm. Like people think of trucking and truckers, like you, you see truckers all the time and you don't necessarily think, oh, this is a super fascinating thing that I would like to know more about on a daily basis. And yet there's this entire world of trucking influencers who have basically rejected that and said, well, actually, you know, what we're doing is, is really interesting because we're moving around the things that like the entire com- country relies on. And we live this life that's sort of like, yeah, among the people, but also like different from them as well, because we exist between, like between the cities is where our lives happen. And so they're out there telling these fascinating stories. And like a lot of them have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of YouTube followers. And they're just creating these videos all about what it's like to do that. And where does it come from? It comes from rejecting the idea that your industry is not interesting to like a captive audience. So I like that about this. I also like how methodical he is in terms of uh, what he said with the points one and two there. So I yeah. try to, what did he say? Like make, make these, make it simple and make it, and make it simple. Um, one thing that I know, I, I would, I'd be curious to dig in with him a little bit more on this, but like one thing that I know, um, Sahil does, uh, with his Twitter threads is, you know, he'll, he'll approach them in a similar way. So when he's thinking about a topic, he uses the Feynman technique for, for learning something, mm. which 
you probably heard of, but for anybody who hasn't heard of it, it goes something like this, which is like, think through the topic as you currently understand it and sort of bullet out how you would explain it to a five-year-old. And then inevitably in that process, you're going to get to some things that you don't fully understand yourself, like little gaps in your own knowledge. And so you go back, you fill those gaps, and then you just kind of repeat the process. Well, that's one of the tools that Sahil Bloom uses when he's creating his Twitter threads, which are so popular. The other thing, though, that he thinks through is he says, okay, well, you can't always just be teaching people, right? Because people tune out. They can't always be learning. So if you really want to build engagement, you have to do like teaching and storytelling. I really admire people who have these very simple frameworks for how they approach their content strategy. And it seems like he has that too. He certainly does. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll just say about this, it sort of like a broader business thing. I like when people refuse to let a traditionally complex topic be complex. Like as a business owner, your money is the most important thing that you have to think about, like your money and your clients, basically. And a lot of these people who don't want to explain money to you, they'll do it. There's a lot of reasons. You know, some people just aren't good teachers and that's fine. But some people do it because by deliberately making their industry seem complex, they feel that they're either justifying their job or they're protecting their job or something like that. My take is that the reality is if you're doing good work and you're doing important, valuable work, it doesn't matter how simple you make it appear to other people. Because as soon as they try to, like they, as soon as they try to do it, they know how difficult it is. Exactly. True experts make their work appear simple, but by like hiding what you're doing behind layers of obscurity. I mean, some people might be protecting their jobs that way, but it's not like a mark of expertise. It's, it's, it's actually the opposite in a lot of yeah, cases. Yeah. It's, it's, it's scarcity thinking. Yeah. It's very scarcity complex. I totally agree with you. I'm going to avoid going down like a meandering rabbit hole just because I've, I've thought a lot about this with, you know, with tech people and client services and how they use these fancy words and make it seem like it's much more complicated than it actually is when in reality, people don't want to do it. And that's why they're hiring you. And like, if you just do really good, then you can bank on that because they're, they don't, even if they knew how to do it, they would probably still hire you because business owners got other stuff to do. So yeah, totally agree. Let me move on. Can I say one more thing before you do? Yes, please. I, I agree with his point too, that this is an interesting topic. Like we said that a lot of topics can be interesting, but specifically finance, this is the story of business, Yeah. right? Like you learn how to read numbers and you can see things that are happening inside of a company that people, other people can't see. And yes. we'll link to this in the show notes, but there is a great PDF. It's basically a book because I think it's like 200 pages or something all about how to read financial statements, but it was written by a university professor who is writing specifically for people who are not accountants. So these are people who want to understand how businesses work. This. We'll put it in the show notes. It's really, really good. And he's a, nice. he's a great writer. It's super approachable. You will never look at financial statements the same way if you even read just like the first chapter of this book. Awesome. Uh, but I agree with this guy's point that this is like a super interesting topic. All right, move on. Question number two. <laughs> look at this. I actually wrote CPA, even though it's CFO. <laughs> your decision. <laughs> Question number two. What great is minds. a virtual CFO? Most big organizations have in-house finance teams. For smaller and growing businesses, having a full finance team doesn't make sense. We are the solution to these small and growing businesses. We act as an online finance and accounting resource for small and growing businesses. We take care of everything that a typical finance department does. 
paying your bills, running payroll, to developing a forecast for your company. It was good to hear him say this in his words, but I, I feel like we kind of already went through this in the in the beginning. Nonetheless, I think the point to highlight is just to double down on, on what we said that like so many companies are in this weird spot where they're still trying to do their books on their own. And it's hard because you know if you had a better num if you had a better idea of where your money was flowing, you could save money. But in order to save that money, you have to spend money. So there's this weird like purgatory land, which uh which this guy is really solving for. Can I ask you a question? Since yeah. I think yeah. you've been through this in an interesting way. Having built a handful of businesses at this point to the, the like six figure plus recurring monthly revenue, at what point would you hire one of these virtual or actually let's start smaller because there's basically like three steps. You have like your bookkeeper, which mm-hmm. is sort of the the least expensive option for somebody who's got um, books that need keeping. And then you have like, kind of above that, you have like this kind of a fractional CFO or fractional CPA. And then beyond that, you have like full-time hires. So having been through the ringer a few times, at how would you determine when to first hire a bookkeeper? as a business owner? Well, knowing what I know now from day one, it's so important. And here's why it's important. Because everything is fine until April. And then everything is a complete disaster. And you go, like when I used to do in the beginning, I remember those months being so stressful and everything would come to like a such a like a standstill because you know, it's like you, you can't mess around with the IRS. Like you just can't. And, you know, you blow it off for a year. And then the next year, this this point, I've had people knocking on my door, you know, and like they're friendly. The IRS isn't as scary as they make it seem in the mornings, in the movies, excuse me. But like they will knock on your door mm-hmm. <laughs> and like they're not leaving, <laughs> by the way. And they'll have a friendly face and stuff, but but they're coming. So knowing what I know now, right from the very beginning. Now, that might sound kind of trite, you know. Hindsight is twenty twenty. So the real answer is twofold. One, learn how to use QuickBooks because it's a it's a really really robust accounting software, and you can map out expenses, taxes, contractors, receipts, stuff that you, you don't think that you you don't realize you need like W nines. You know, like it's so easy to hire a contractor and then end of March comes and you're sending out like 25 W9s and no one's getting back to, you know, so use how to figure out how to use QuickBooks and then definitely find a CPA that usually has like a two to $300 a month, just straight up bookkeeping because it's good to have a monthly P&L. It really, really is good to have a monthly P&L because I've had a few times in my career where like things are looking good, but I just, and and all of a sudden stuff catches up to you. Where, especially in client services, like you're always lagging a little bit because you don't feel the loss of a client for like two or three months. In my business, particularly, if we got a website deal that goes with an SEO deal, we don't actually feel like the cash flow from that client until like month three and like really month four or five because SEO is very like front loaded in terms of spending the resources on like a typical 12 to 18 month account. So, Three parts of that answer. Knowing what I know now, right from the very beginning. Get somebody to do your book so you don't have to do it again. Answer number two, if you can't do that, use QuickBooks over FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a cool invoicing software. It's not, a, it's not an accounting software. Learn how to use QuickBooks. And then number three, 
as soon as you can, like hire a bookkeeper. I'd say, I'd say if you're doing 150 grand a, a year, even if you have one employee, hire a bookkeeper because it's worth just being in the habit of, you know, you, you get a, you get a receipt, take a picture of it and send it to your bookkeeper and you just get into those habits. You never have to think about it again. So yeah, like really, like you said, man, like this is such boring, dry stuff that like the entrepreneur doesn't want to think about. They just want to like get moving and start closing deals and writing content and shit. But you're going to need to know it. And so I think this guy is like such a cool business model around that particular pain point. For sure. I've heard other people say similar things too. So Sean Purry, who co-runs the My First Million podcast, he actually has a lot of different companies that he runs. And Sam asked him one time, like, how, how do you manage all this? And, you know, one of the things that he pointed to was uh, a bookkeeper, like a, a super early bookkeeper as being oh, yeah. like a very important hire. And, uh, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I got the impression when I was listening to it that, you know, like this would be one of his first hires as, as well if he was starting over again. Anywhere that you would find them, bookkeeper specifically. And I'll, I'll, I'll make a quick recommendation if you feel like you're, uh, at the next level. So for this like fr- fractional CFO, fractional CPA kind of thing, this guy, obviously an option. Uh, and yeah. you can Google, you can Google Not others, really. but I used to work for a company called TopTal, which specifically hired out like freelance talent and, and fractional CFO was a big thing that they were focused on. So anybody who feels like they're in this position right now, you know, I haven't been associated with the company in several years, but back then we were doing really good work and I uh, trust the way they were vetting people. So you can check out TopTal. Or you can just Google like fractional CFO and then your industry. But one thing I just wanted to add real quick was I'm glad you mentioned the price for bookkeepers because it turns out it's actually really easy to get taken advantage of, especially if in your like if you're in a an industry where you're making a lot of money as a relatively inexperienced entrepreneur. So I just yeah. interviewed a woman the other day. I think she calls herself like the the OnlyFans accountant or something like that. And she basically she's a, she's uh, she's an accountant. That works exclusively with OnlyFans models. What a good idea! It's such an interesting like niche, so, and she says it's all like cash recurring. Yep. So oh we, my gosh, what a good idea! Yeah, we were talking about this for people listening. Like that, that whole world is in in need of all sorts, all basically all the boring business services that everybody else can get. Yep, these OnlyFans models can't get, and it's partly because it, like. OnlyFans is still considered sex work. And so that's like a taboo industry. And it's like sex work, cannabis. There's a handful of them where people who start yeah, legitimate legal businesses yeah. in these arenas, they can't get like, they have very hard time getting bank accounts. They have a very hard time uh, finding anybody who will process credit card transactions. She told me stories of people who like their banks find out that they're OnlyFans models and they don't even say anything. They just cash um, out. Um, they just cash out their account and mail a check to whatever the last address on file was. Crazy. So anyways, the big reason I mentioned it is because she says a lot of these girls have bookkeepers, but the bookkeepers are charging like $1,200 a month just because girls are making like $700,000 a year. They have no idea. They don't really have a, a, a sense of how much, yeah, how much this service should be. And so I like that you mentioned like the two to $300 a month. She said the exact same thing. That's about mm-hmm. Where uh, where she targets it to? So uh, I'm glad you mentioned the price. I had asked one question, which was: Is there anywhere that you would search for a bookkeeper specifically? I got. I've been very lucky that I've worked with the same accounting firm that Sachs 
he's got like a family accounting firm. I know I mentioned this before. He comes from like a long line of families that owned real estate in Upper East Side Manhattan, you know? So they got like their family <laughs> accountants, if you know what I mean. And I was just very lucky. You know what? I would go to verticalcpa.ca. I, I I don't know Jeez. where, but like <laughs> this well, is like, the best shot. Potentially, yeah, this is the guy we're talking about, by the way, guys. And yeah, he hasn't paid for that, so you're and he'll slide me some money, by the yeah. way. Yeah, and hopefully, five years from now, we're not going to see him ushered out of a building in handcuffs. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, just funny. Google it. You can just Google, it. and but but it can help if you Google if you or if you look for bookkeepers in your industry because they'll be more familiar with whatever the specifics are. Sure. If, whatever you're trying to keep them, uh, whatever business you're running. Okay. So I've stopped you long enough. Why don't you keep going? No, those, those are great conversations. This is why I think this is so cool because this is the kind of shit that no one like, it's not in the forefront lexicon of dialogue in like the Twitter entrepreneur sphere. All right. So I asked him another question. Is there one thing in particular you feel has separated him from the crowd? I- I'm going to skip that one because question number five is really like what I think is the golden nugget here that we can bring forward. Okay. My question, is it difficult to price your services? I see on your site, you tried your best to quote productize your services, but the reality is there's a lot of nuance and every client is different. How do you get past the the bottleneck of proposals, research, sales, etc.? So this addresses what we talked about here. He's got those three pricing models and only one of them has an actual price and the other two are basically like call for a quote. He says, quote, it's definitely not easy. I'd say it's more of an art than a science. The method I'm currently using is one where I sign up clients for basic bookkeeping package. This is a smaller price commitment on their part and easier for my team to handle. Over time, we add more services and increase the price accordingly. This avoids situation where we're quoting a price that is too low or too high, excuse me, that is too low or a price that is too high and losing business. Rather than trying to push a big price on a client up front, you slowly graduate them up to a higher price package. That is so goddamn smart. It's so smart. And I'll tell you why. Because I, I, I look at it from my perspective. And this is just my experience. I think it's probably safe to say that I'm not going to be the only one thinking these things. One, it's embarrassing sometimes to not have a clue how any of this stuff works. And so I've been in conversations where I just felt so out of my league and instantly wanted to be off the phone. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to get taken advantage of. I don't know what's going on. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. No, thanks. Send me, send me some information. I'll call you back in a week and never did. Right. But two, it is. I don't know what the word is. Like, you know, when you're feeling anxious and you got a big lump in your throat and like you, you, you did that swallow. It's, it is one of those moments where you're like, man, I, I need to figure this out. You keep kicking the can down the road and eventually the day comes just like, I can't wait anymore. And then all of that weight and overwhelm piles up. And so what a elegant and like a very tactful approach because here's really what I'm getting at. Once somebody is managing your books, they're managing your books because the pain of having somebody else manage your books is so terrible that like when you find somebody that you can trust, you'll always give them more money or like always. I've never ever paid less to my accountants 
the month, <laughs> like this month, than I did last month. Like never. It's never once happened. So what a great tactful approach that I think can be spread on like every service industry possible. Okay, that's an interesting. I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. It's an interesting or important heads up for people who don't currently have a bookkeeper, right? Yeah. Make sure you like this person. Don't just pick somebody in five minutes. Yeah. Because uh, you're going to be working with them for a while, probably. It could be interesting to talk a little bit too about like, well, how do you actually do that? But let's stick to the bigger picture here too, which is when it comes to running your own business. It sounds like what you're saying is get them in the door and then find ways to grow the relationship over time. And that is the, that's the idea that transcends different industries there. It sounds also, I mean, I'm assuming you guys do this, right? Because you have a lot of longstanding relationships going on with, with customers. Did this feel like it was a new insight for you? Or when you read this, did you kind of like see yourself reflected in it? Wow. What a great question. The, the, okay. The first thing that popped into my head is like my ego is too big and I'm missing out on so much opportunity from just like meeting people where they're at. Because I guess it's a little bit easier said than done. There is such a thing as like scale, you know, and there is, there's this concept again, Pareto principle. Like the last thing I want to do is have a $500 a month account that takes up all of my time because that's just kind of the way it works. However, off the top of my head, I can think of one this week, really, where there was probably a good opportunity to build a long lasting, significant, mutually beneficial relationship that I didn't take because in my mind, like, I'm not there anymore. You know, I don't need to do that anymore. And so it was a bit of an ego check to think that like, this guy's background, which we didn't get into yet, and his skills and, and where he's at, if, if this isn't just like him being in touch with his ego. This is like a tactic. And in order to create this tactic, he, he has practiced the art of like scaling up, you know? Mm. And, and I, I don't do that. I really don't. I like get them and then drive it on like rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, you know? And like granted, our businesses are probably pretty different, but. Uh, not really. Like he even says in his services, it's basically the same thing every month. The only difference is like the velocity in which they communicate and the the subsequent services that are there. So yeah, I mean, what a great question. That really made me like reflect a little bit because I think why this stood out to me so much is what an opportunity, not only for myself, but for everybody to just get their egos in check and think like, what is what is the baseline value that I can provide and operate under the lens of like trust and then ratchet that trust up over time? Because here's the last thing I'll say. It is infinitely more profitable to keep clients than it is to sell, than to have a continuously revolving door selling. Even if the clients that you're selling are big clients, it doesn't matter. It is infinitely more profitable to keep clients over a long period of time than to have to continue flipping clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The more I think about this, the more I see parallels to other pricing schemes and even like business models in different industries. So we talk a lot here about media as a business model, how you have yeah. your free content uh, that, that funnels people into your front end, which is typically some kind of paid subscription, and then how the front end funnels people into the back end, which is a higher price paid product. And what's interesting about the parallels between what he's doing in that 
model is that it is many, many, many times harder to cold sell somebody on your back end product than it would be to put somebody through that same funnel from beginning to end. Oh yeah. What a good parallel. Right. And and so the the similarity there is like it's harder to sell the gold accounting package than it is to kind of like you said, meet somebody where they are, get them started. And and to be honest, he's getting them started even before that with the content. The 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 the, the Twitter threads that he's putting out could be thought of as like one of the earliest value transfers inside of his sales funnel. And I don't know if most business owners put a dollar figure on what it's worth to have a single person following you and paying attention to you. Obviously, it's way easier when you're selling them something because the dollar figure is very clear. But let's assume for a second that you could put a dollar figure on the value of somebody's trust, just as even just as like a Twitter follower. Hmm. Then in some ways, that follow is the or could be seen as like the meeting somebody where they are. That's the low price in the door, and it's the lowest price of all. All you got to do is click follow, right? But you are starting to deliver value there, and then you're slowly upselling them throughout the course of the rest of, hey, you know, we have this intro package. You can go get our services, our basic services. And then from there, you're tacking services on. So there's, I see a parallel there, which is kind of interesting that I hadn't thought through before. And then even more concretely, the way that advertising is typically sold, which we've talked about as well is that you have these different products that are really designed to work together in order to ultimately increase the value of longtime advertisers. So you'll have whatever your premium ad is, it's the most expensive. Then you have a downsell, which is a little less expensive or say half the price. And then there'll be these loss leaders, which are really inexpensive. And the way you can typically use those, obviously, you could cold sell somebody on the premium ad, and that works sometimes. But often, you end up selling them the least expensive thing you have. And then if it works and it delivers for them, you slowly ratchet that relationship up. To me, it's it's interesting because it's not necessarily – I think it's a, I think it's a fairly intuitive strategy once somebody points it out to you, like what's happening. Like what you've done here and laid it out on paper. It's like, oh, that is it. Yeah, I, 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 I get that. It makes sense to me. And what I had never considered before was the overlap between this and how it works in other business models. So it's pretty rad. That, that is very rad. I, I did see that. I think if there's an opportunity that like I see in it for myself and hopefully for our listeners is that you want to get to a point where people need you and it's not to say that like they're handcuffed to you like you're holding them hostage it's that your life is their life is better with you in it right i mean i don't know well shit my bookkeeper is is a perfect example like no way ever could i live without those people or trisha she's basically the president of my company I mean, if she came to me and said that like she's leaving or something, I would do anything to keep her. And so I think what this does is it, it paves the way for like proof and trust because like trust is kind of like time, you know, it's like within itself a currency that is so freaking valuable that it can't even be measured. Like you can't compare it in that way. And if you get to the point 
where you can make somebody's life so much better that the trust that they have basically takes away all of their concern, then you just, you have a client for life and they will be happy to, I really say this with like an emphasis, they will be happy to continue paying you and continue adding more and more services onto their, their line items of, of services that they pay you for. Because like the more they hand off to you, the less concern they have to deal with, you know? And so like when I saw that, that was definitely a little bit of a click for me where it's like, oh, I'm costing myself and probably everybody, especially people that run a client service business. It's not, I'm not saying take on annoying cheap accounts. I'm not saying undersell yourself. I'm saying take advantage of the opportunity to ratchet up trust over time in a direct correlation to revenues and profits. I really like the way you laid that last point out. And maybe we could give people like specific tactic here, which would be, so if I'm thinking about this, let's say I've productized. So I used to do this with web, uh, like web development. I had just about gotten where I productized that service and I had one package and it was like, this is the amount. This is what we do. This mm-hmm. is how long it takes. And this is what the process looks like. So assuming you're starting from that point, I was still relatively early in that business, but that was, I had one package before I would like, I obviously only had one. So I think you'll probably end up with one before you end up with several. So if you're sitting in a situation where you have gotten to the point, you've productized your product, you've productized your service, and maybe you have this one package, then a way to think about this would be to look at that and ask yourself, how could I change this in both directions? So which pieces could I pull out in order to lower the price? And which, what could I add in order to raise the price? Like it's almost like treat that as your middle tier package and then ask yourself what would be on either side of it. And I think it's important to keep the context in mind that you said, which is like you're not pulling services out to appeal to cheaper clients. You're pulling services out so that you can get in the door with expensive clients who haven't built trust with you yet. Yeah. Right. So I think as you do this, it's important and it's always important to think through this, but you have to be cognizant of what your criteria is for like a high quality client and you're looking down the down the road but i would be looking at those services and being like well what can people really do without when we first start working together like what's the most important bang for your buck thing yeah where as soon as i sign people up i want to get them a quick win and and and, and start get the hooks that, in. yeah start that positive feedback loop of like oh so i'm so glad we did this i'm so mm-hmm. glad we hired tim because instantly i've been working on this for years and all of a sudden instantly we just improved a b and c and then kind of map out what what are the other wins that take more time and how can i add those to different packages over time it's really interesting yeah i i it's, it's cool right it's so it obvious but like i never thought about front it like of mind that. yeah like yeah. i just i never thought about it that way and as soon as i asked that question and the way that he came back with it, it was like because just think about what we were saying from the very beginning you don't necessarily need a CFO, you know, like you can do taxes, you can do this, you can do that. Like, what's the one thing that you just need? You need to have your books in order. And once somebody is doing your books for you, like you are never, ever, ever doing your books yourself again. It's just not going to happen. It's like a thing that it, it's, it's a switch that you won't unswitch. And so whatever your business is, think about that one switch that you can offer for your clients that once they switch it, they're never going backwards. 
And then that's like your, that's your in, that's your trust. That's your, um, that's your credibility that you can establish with them. Hmm. This is cool, man. Uh, this was a, this was a really cool case study. I got to think through this some more too, because it feels like there's a lot of meat on this bone, but so much. Yeah. I'm going to go through this last question too, because he was, uh, had an interesting story and I want to give him just like a personal shout out for, for the leap. So number six, finally, I said, hit me with a cool story or idea, the origin of your company, something that will give me some color and how this all came to be. I didn't plan on this being like a red word for word type question. It was just going to be some, uh, some context for me, but listen to what he said. I launched my business during COVID in March, 2021, which is a year and a half ago, by the way. I used to work at Apple in finance and had a great job, had no reason to leave, but I've always wanted to work for myself and COVID created the perfect opportunity. I started the business on the side in March of 2021, and I quit my job in September 2021 to go full-time, and it's been a hell of a ride since. So what's that? What do you see there? You see that cash flow? I was just going to say, well, he replaced an Apple job pretty fast, so that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Um, and the, the thing that this makes me curious to do, and this is, I'm always, I always nerd out on this is I would be willing to bet he didn't have 72,000 followers in March of last no year. Way. And so he's done a really great job growing that audience. It sounds like he's done it very purposefully. So what I always do when I find people like this is I love to take the URL for their Twitter account and then drop it into archive.org and just see how their account has that works grown for Twitter? over time. Yeah, dude, let's try it right now. I'll try it live. If you uh, yeah, go to his page and grab his account. It's it it um it's a I little hit or miss. The Wayback Machine works for Yeah. So they don't index every page, but accounts that tend to grow really fast and start getting a lot of traffic. I don't know what they do, but somehow they they tend to trip something on this. And so you'll see, yeah, it looks like the furthest back they have is March of 2022, so that was a couple months ago. But you'll see, let's see, back then he had 23 followers or 23,000 followers. Yeah, so March of this year, he was at 23,000. Right now, he's at 72,000. So that's really interesting. It's like, well, what happened in between those two? And you can see there's snapshots here from throughout the year. So you can kind of plot his growth uh, between these two points. And then the next thing I would do, like right here, at that point, his pinned post was, if you run a business, you must understand accounting. Here's what you need to know. It's got 109,000 likes, which is crazy. Very um, crazy. Yeah. And then I would like Still, that I, was in March. So that's not necessarily the thread that catapulted him. I mean, it's just boring consistency. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I would if it, if it were me breaking this down. The next thing I would do, first thing I would do is click on that thread and read through it because it's pretty crazy to get that much attention on anything. And 109,000 likes, 24,000 retweets, right? This was clearly a really good thread. And oh, wow. I know it, it certainly this. could have catapulted him to the 20,000 plus people. I've seen something like that happen with other, uh, like other influencers in other spaces. I forget his name. Mark something is a ex hockey player who basically did this same thing. And he had a few influential friends who helped him write the copy, helped him kind of boost the post early on. And I think he got, I'll get the number wrong, but it's something like 50,000 followers in the first wow. couple of days that he was posting threads. And, now, a, a couple of things to call out about this. So Sam Parr helps a lot of people with their Twitter stuff. And he helped this Mark guy too. And I, I asked him, I'm like, you know, what is it that you think he's doing that has made him so incredibly successful in the first couple of days? And he goes, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of, he says, well, 
there's one thing that you can't learn. It can't be learned, right? He's out there already living an interesting life. Yeah. It's not like there's some super secret hook that's just going to get you all the likes and all the, um, you know, retweets and all that kind of stuff. You can get better at that. That part can be learned. But this Mark guy, if I'm getting his name right, I don't even know if it was Mark now, but he's a hockey guy. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll link to his account in the show notes. He's like one of the longest playing NHL uh, guys, one of the highest paid NHL guys. So he was out there living an interesting life for a long time. And then he decided to bring those insights to Twitter. And I think what Ollie's done in a really effective manner is... Same thing. Uh, yeah, he worked for Apple in finance and he's he's out there like actually doing this thing in the real world. And now he's going to bring all those insights into this place and show you the things that you never knew you needed to know. Uh, he also happens to be very good at writing. Like this is just good. He's uh, very good at writing, which yeah. is always makes me feel good because because that's the thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, so, yeah, and that's not, yeah. That's not to say that the like living an interesting life is everything, right? It's a big thing, but you have to be good at communicating. And, uh, but what I was getting at here is like, if this were me, I would break down this thread. I would I would try to figure out what what made this so valuable. I would go back through the retweets. So if you go. Up to the top there, like I would, I don't know if it'll show you here. Yeah, it doesn't because this is probably the original like indexed tweet because we're yeah. on Wayback Machine, right? But it was only a couple months ago, so I would go back to his actual account and I would find oh, that yeah. tweet and I would look at who quote retweeted it and who, yeah, the quote retweets specifically, like or and who the top comments were to figure out like was it just a really good tweet or were there a few super influential people sure. that get, gave it attention early on. Uh, and then I would look at how his following grew based on all these screenshots that are, that are in the Wayback Machine. And I would start, I would like just scroll back through time and break down his approach to Twitter and like see what I could learn from that. But you can do all this like this, you know, it, this doesn't take super long. If you have an hour to kill one day, you can go do this and you'll learn a lot from guys like Ali and reverse he, engineer his, his success, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for people listening to this, if you have these people that you really admire, or who, that you stumble across the way Tim found this guy. Those are some tricks that you can use to try and figure out how he did it. Well, I loved it. I thought he was really interesting. I'm very excited to put this out there. I want to hear and see the response we get from kind of these dissections and these breakdowns of cool people running cool businesses. Thanks for being my sounding board, Ethan. I appreciate you <laughs> reeling me back in every time I'm about to be a runaway train. And, uh, and yeah, this was, this was a great episode, man. Uh, I'm really glad that we did this. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interesting experiment that we did. If you would, please give us a like, give us a follow. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. And also, one last note is the copy blogger Twitter handle is also very active. So all of the threads and breakdowns that we're going to be doing can be seen on uh, that handle as well. And, um, and I appreciate you guys. Talk to you next week. Bye.